I'm T.L. and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe. But our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications right here on Outside the Walls. Well, tomorrow is the baptism of the Lord. It's the feast that we'll celebrate, which marks the end of the Christmas season. And that means that you are now free to take down your decorations. Um, my, uh, my neighbors are probably really excited about this feast because we've kept the Christmas lights up. We've kept the, uh, the crash out on the front porch, uh, the, the Holy family sitting out there and, um, the Christmas tree still up. We light it every day and they're really, really looking forward to tomorrow's feast because they don't know it yet, but they are because that's when we're taking the tree down and, uh, and moving on to this time between the seasons as we now turn our eyes uh, toward the Feast of the Presentation, which comes on February 2nd. So um, here we are. We have had this opportunity to really marinate in the Incarnation, to, to take the time to hear the readings at Mass, to hear the carols that are sung at Mass that proclaim in their own way the incarnation of the Lord, that God, the the Lord of all who made the heavens and the earth uh, by his word, the the one who created all things for himself, uh, this, this one came and took on human nature, the nature of the created order, for the sake of restoring that created order back to himself. This is uh, just worthy of our meditation and, and not something that we should just wait for uh, Christmas to think about. Yes, we absolutely want to give it special attention during this feast, but it's something that we should be contemplating all the time. And one of the ways that we can do that is by contemplating the baptism. Yes, it's the culmination of the season, but there's more to it than that because uh, <clears throat> God who made the world took on human nature so that in baptism, you and I might be clothed in the divine nature. John, in one of his epistles, talks about um, we, were made, we were given the, the, uh, the gift by God. Uh, he went out of his way to make us sharers in the divine nature. So he came and put on human nature to uh, to acclimate the natures to one another, so that the human nature and the divine nature could uh, could coexist in the same body, right? And then beyond that, he went a step further, and he stepped into the waters. And by his descent into the waters of baptism, he sanctified the waters, so that when we, you and I, also descend into the baptismal waters, those waters which were sanctified by his touch would then in turn sanctify us. And so here, as we meditate on the baptism of the Lord, we are rejoicing in a very real way in the means of our justification. We are uh, adopted by God through baptism. That's the moment. And that's why we baptize our infants, because we want to make them sharers in the divine life. We want to give them, through no effort of their own, uh, the gift of God's grace. And so we participate in that by bringing our children uh, to the church, presenting them to God, 
and allowing the graces of God to be bestowed on them through the baptismal waters. So today we're going to be talking uh, about baptism from a couple of different uh, angles. First, we're going to look at uh, the baptism of the Lord. Second, we're also going to look at what it means for you and I to be baptized, and not simply the act of baptism, but to look at what that act entails. This is not a, um, it's not one of those moments that we can look and say, oh, well, this baptism happened. It's in history and it's done uh, in some way, like the cross, uh, not, not completely the same, but in some way, like the cross, it is the ongoing, ever-present moment. Um, we who have been baptized are still living the effects of our baptism. There are still things that we have by virtue of our baptism that uh, it's not just, oh, I received that singular grace so long ago, and, and now I can recall that grace. We are living under the effects of that grace in a continuing basis. That grace is continuing to be released upon us. It is that which initiates us into the family of God. And then third, we're going to talk about that that famous story uh, in the Gospel of John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and, and has a conversation with him, and baptism comes up and is part of that. Now, we're going to take those in no particular order, uh, kind of mix them all up, as we have a conversation with our good friend, Bo Bonner. Bo is the host of The Uncommon Good on Iowa Catholic Radio, as well as the director of the Zeta Institute and much more that we'll get into a little bit later. He wrote a piece the, uh, about a year and a half ago for the uh, McGrath Institute for Church Life, the Church Life Journal for the University of Notre Dame, called Our Baptism in Ordinary Time. And it's quite the thought-provoking piece. And so we're going to have a conversation surrounding the the not only the contents of that article, but also taking it a little bit broader and looking at, at baptism writ large. That uh, kind of wrestling with what it means for baptism to initiate us into the body of Christ, for us to be adopted and to be um, part of the family of God by virtue of our baptism. And then also with that being the case, of course it brings with it rights, but it also brings responsibilities. What does baptism require then of us, uh, not in order to be baptized, but because we were baptized? So that conversation is coming up right after this break as we talk with Bo Bonner about baptism. Now, I also want to hear about your baptism stories. Maybe uh, if you were baptized later in life and remember it, tell me a little bit about that. If you, uh, if you had children that were baptized, tell me something that stood out to you through the ritual of the church that you encountered in baptism. Do that over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. I'd love to hear from you. When we come back, we're going to plumb the depths of the baptismal font, dive into the topic of baptismal regeneration, and much more. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. 
Well, tomorrow we celebrate the baptism of the Lord. Uh, It's officially the end of the Christmas season. Get all your Christmas carols in today because uh, this is it. Now, the season is over, but you can continue to celebrate because we still have some other feasts that are associated with Christmas. Candlemas is coming up, the Feast of the Presentation, uh, which is the day that the groundhog comes out of the ground, looks for his shadow, and tells us that there's going to be six more weeks to Christmas because, of course, you can always remember the Feast of the Presentation is February 2nd, on Groundhog's Day. Uh, Today we're talking about the baptism of the Lord. It's one of these mysteries of the epiphany that we celebrate. And uh, today we're talking with Bo Bonner, uh, the director of the Zeta Institute and the director of mission and ministry at Mercy College uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. And we're talking about the baptism of the Lord in specific, but baptism writ large uh, as well. What, What is the purpose of baptism? What did Christ have to say about baptism? And Bo, you recently wrote a piece, um, well, I say recently, I recently found a piece that you wrote some time ago uh, talking about that exchange that Jesus had with Nicodemus talking about baptism. So uh, glad to have you on the show again. It's always good to be back. And, you know, we're always making fun of the internet and all the bad things it does. But I guess it's nice to know that uh, you can write an article like a year and a half ago and it still stays there and you run into it. So good job, internet, for once. Praise where praise is due. You know, Good job, Internet, except, you know, if you ever change your mind, it's still there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it it can come back to haunt you. I think I'm going to stick with this one, though. Uh, I I don't think I I threw into anything too controversial. Um, But but the idea is I wrote this in, like I said, during an ordinary time uh, a few a while back. But you make the point, right, that we're if we're not in strictly ordinary, ordinary time, we're in the time in between. And I, I think that still relates back um, uh, to the season very much. We're, we're getting done with Christmas. As you pointed out, February 2nd is sort of the absolute end. I always like to joint pe- j- uh, joke that my birthday is February 3rd. So, you know, clearly it has to be done by the time I roll around. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we're kind of waiting for uh, proto-Lent into Lent itself. Um, so what what one thing that can be interesting i guess is it was what i was thinking about when i wrote this is ordinary time makes it sound like there's actually a time in the church's life where things settle down and quote unquote nothing's happening um but if we believe that baptism is what we say it is uh what scripture says it is what we teach in catechetical formation uh, no time is ordinary now. You know, no, nothing is left the same, and and that's what I was hoping to get at. I have a, so I'm gonna, I'm going to let you get back to that, but I have a different take on ordinary time than than our traditional idea of oh well it's humdrum and it's ordinary, uh, but that there is a time in our lives <clears throat> that the the food that we're eating needs to be staple, right? We need to have an ordinary diet. Uh, to account for the fact that we're going to have times of feasting, because if we feast all the time, then we just then we're just gluttons. And if we if we fast all the time and never have any celebration, then or never have any normal food, then that's also unhealthy for us. And so there's this this staple diet that we need to eat in order to be healthy. And the church says, okay, there are some certain readings and some certain. Um, practices and some certain things that we need to do as an ordinary practice of our lives, or we're not going to be healthy. So we're going to have these feasts where we're going to focus on this. We're going to have these fasts where we're going to um, really uh, dive down deep into a certain thing, but then we still need the rest of our diet. We need that ordinary uh, Catholicism in order to be healthy as Catholics. 
That's how well, I, I like. Yeah, I like that if we connect it with uh, so um, calling it ordinary time is relatively recent. What they used to, of course, call it is the time after Pentecost or the time after Epiphany, uh, the time between uh, Christmas and Lent. And I, I like that idea, too, that as long as we realize the ordinary food of our soul, so to speak, is this reality, this new reality after Pentecost, this new reality after Epiphany. I like that idea, right, that 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 it's not like ho-hum, like you're saying, it's not ho-hum, get back to normal, forget this interesting stuff. It's everything's changed and what is the staple diet of the Christian? And, and like you said, uh, ordinary time, you know, throughout the summer is uh, many of the actual, you know, the teachings of Jesus, right? His teaching ministry takes front and center. And, and I actually think you're right that the time after Epiphany, this short ordinary time between the Christmas season and the start of Lent really does dwell on things like what is baptism? Uh, what does it mean uh, that uh, the, the three wise men were Gentiles that came? You know, the, the, the sort of readings that we have now is in consideration of what is the new quote-unquote normal now that the king of kings ha has been born, but born in a stable, right? Born of a lowly state. It's a new normal, and it's interesting to dwell on that. It's almost like we need to have an understood therefore right at the end of the Christmas season, right at the end of, of Easter. So Easter, therefore, and then we go into the, the, what, what the new ordinary is or the new normal. Right. And, and I, I, that's what I, I hope people start to realize. And um, in, in the article, just one of the, the people that I'd read, this is Abbot uh, Marmion, he said, start every day with Jesus in Mary's arms being placed in the tomb. So essentially the 13th station of uh, the stations of the cross. And then he said, every moment through the rest of your day is little resurrections, right? Hmm. And he makes this connection because St. Paul says when we are baptized, we are baptized into a death like his, like Christ's so that we be may risen in a resurrection like us. So, of course, all of this is angling, as it were, towards our resurrection at the end of time. But uh, Marmion wants to point out that through the day, if we start with our baptism, our burial with Christ, then we will be able to see the resurrection that occurs every day throughout that time. And, and people have done various practices to remember this. There's people who wake up, and when they wash their face, they... They say a quick prayer, remember that you've been baptized. I mean, there's, there's different ways to do this. Um, but if baptism is going to be more than just, you know, the neat sort of quasi-ethnic thing we do so we can all get the ants together and eat cake, uh, <laughs> then it needs to be constant reminder about the new normal, the fact that we are buried with Christ every day so that we can be raised with him every day. If you're just joining us today, we're talking with Bo Bonner, director of the Zeta Institute, director of mission and ministry at Mercy College, and host of The Uncommon Good on Iowa Catholic Radio. And as you're talking about taking the opportunity throughout the day to remember our baptism, I think we have to be cautious because the church gives us so much practice uh, with remember your baptism. Every time we walk into the church, we have the font right there full of holy water that we can dip our finger in and remember our baptism, not in a cognitive sense, but in a, oh yes, I need to be mindful of my baptism and how that impacts my life. The, the, the therefore, but you were baptized, therefore. Um, but I think that so often we end up being so familiar with the font that we don't actually take the time to look for the therefore. We don't look for 
the true reminder of our baptism. It's just the thing that we do when we first walk into the church. Agreed. And um, I, I end that article with, with Jesus's declaration, behold, I make all things new. And that's the real quintessential aspect of baptism, right? He's, he's baptism is the marker of making all things new. So how do we make all things new? Well, even it, it's like you said, um, if, if we have ritual and we do it a few times a year, it starts to be pretty special, right? So like we, we have Christmas one time a year and, you know, I'm well into, you know, triple decade numbers of, of celebrating it. And even old curmudgeonly me can still be like, Ooh, Christmas, right? Um, <laughs> if you sort of get in this middle range, it gets easy to forget. Ah, uh, there's the, the holy water, you know, uh, it's easy to forget. The only other way you get past this is to go nuts with how often you actually point out the baptismal references. What I mean by this is if you go read ancient church fathers reading the Old Testament, every time water comes up, one of the questions is, does this have something to do with baptism? And there's obvious ones, right? Like crossing the Jordan, right. uh, the, the, the flood. But people that are picking up cups of water and you have, you know, like John Chrysostom being like, is this baptism? And you're like, maybe he's just thirsty, but I appreciate <laughs> that for them, they're going the opposite way to say, look, God provides not only, you know, daily or a moderate amount, God goes overboard, giving you instances to think my baptism, my baptism, my baptism. And that to me sometimes is like you said, the danger starts to be we think all things in moderation are good. We, we kind of will start to make a, an idol of moderation. And I know this can sound like, I, this might be the more controversial thing I'm saying. Because <laughs> um, people think moderation is sort of like the high point of morality. Um, but, but the scriptures don't seem to think that. So there's this weird passage in Matthew. It's uh, Matthew 11, 16 through 19. I, I have it up here on the phone. Uh, where... You would think moderation, like I said, is is the sort of name of the game for virtue. But Jesus instead says, uh, what's, what's this generation like? It's like children sitting in a marketplace calling to their fellows, and they say, we've piped to you and you did not dance. We've mourned and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a devil. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, behold, a glutton. Uh, a wine, uh, a wino, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is vindicated by her children. And I don't know, it's one of those amazing passages in John. John is chalk, or excuse me, in the Bible, excuse me, where you will just read it and go, what on earth does it mean? But the longer I thought about that, you know, the, the problem is moderation, which kind of can really seem like you're a virtuous person, you know, because you can, you can kind of, halfway down the middle for a lot of things and seem like, oh, well, I'm a good person. I'm not going too extreme on anything. You hear this in politics, and I'm not trying to say we should be screaming at each other, but you can start to see right where in politics, in religion, in all things, if you kind of just simmer down and be cool, you can seem like the adult in the room. But it seems like Jesus is saying like, no, there's times where you should feast and there's times you should fast. There's times you should be a crazy loon to the world. There are things worth quote unquote, losing um, your, your sort of <laughs> reputation over. And, and one of the things he has in mind, it seems to me, 
is baptism. We don't need to go, we don't need to be even keel on baptism. There's no time where you need to go up to someone and be like, you know, you've talked about baptism a lot. Maybe you should settle down. It's, <laughs> it's an amazing thing. If, if what we say is true about baptism, uh, the, you know, nothing should be able to stop us to talk about how revolutionary it means that if, if, if we who were consigned to, to dust after we die have been placed in the, the death of Christ so that we might rise, um, how, how can we ever stop talking about baptism? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's somewhat important, though. I, I absolutely agree that there are certain things and there are times to be absolutely out of our minds for Christ. In fact, Paul even says, if I'm, if I'm in my right mind, it's for myself. If I'm, and if I'm crazy, it's for Christ. Uh, I think that we have to pick our moments of craziness because if we're crazy all the time, uh, then we can be dismissed when we are crazy for Christ. Of course, the people may dismiss us regardless, but let's be crazy. If we're going to be crazy, let's do it over the things that matter, like baptism, through which we are made sharers in the divine nature. We're going to continue this conversation with Bo Bonner on the topic of baptism right after this break. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle's at outside the walls. I want to hear from you. There's much more to come right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Bo Bonner. He is the director of the Zeta Institute and the director of the Mission and Ministry at Mercy College in Des Moines, Iowa. We're talking about baptism, uh, as we are tomorrow celebrating the baptism of the Lord. And, uh, and so we're going to explore a little bit about what it means for us uh, that we have been baptized, that we have... Uh, received this sacrament that is is much more than this rite of passage that you do for little babies so that you can dress them up and white and eat cake. So, Bo, thanks for joining us again today. Of course. So I want to talk a little bit in this piece that you wrote for the, well, at least I found it in the, the Church Life Journal, the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, uh, churchlife.nd.edu. Uh, you had this blog post, this journal article called um, Baptism in Ordinary Time. And you play out this picture of Nicodemus coming to Jesus, this really familiar passage out of John 3.16. Uh, and John says, uh, uh, rather, Nicodemus says to Jesus, um, teacher, I know that you're from God uh, because no one else could do the things you do apart from God. So uh, here you've got this leader in the Jewish community coming to Jesus at night already that points to the fact that he's legitimately interested and not interested in trapping Jesus. Otherwise he would have done that in the middle of the day for everyone to see. No, he, he has a legitimate curiosity here uh, that he doesn't want to get in trouble for. And so here he is, he approaches Jesus and Jesus immediately answers him and says, uh, I tell you the truth, unless you're born of water and the spirit, uh, you will not see the kingdom of God. And then he goes into this answer that we're all familiar with uh, can a man, a full-grown man, uh, uh, as old as I am, 
I'm expanding a little bit here, um, enter again into his mother's womb. And of course, you mentioned we all have heard this sermon that says uh, Nicodemus just didn't get it. He was uh, taking Jesus way too literally as everyone did, and he missed the nuance. And you have a different perspective on that. So tell us a little bit about what you, uh, how you came to your opinion and uh, maybe point out how we are probably a little bit more connected to Nicodemus than we ever thought. Yeah, well, one of the, uh, you know, like you said, I, I've heard that version of events my whole life. Come on, Nicodemus, get with the program. You know, it's one of, one of those deals. Uh, and to me, this is sort of a subset of, of, of a dominant way to read the Bible where we can domesticate it and then move on, right? So we go like, oh, well, I'm not like Nicodemus, you know. I understand metaphors. And, okay, so Nicodemus obviously is no dummy. Like you already said, he comes at night. He's genuinely interested. He knows scripture enough to say you're, you're fulfilling all of it. And so if you ever get the chance to read rabbis talk about scripture, um, the last person on earth, it would seem to me, that would give an overly literistic, literalistic reading would be a first century uh, Pharisee or scribe or, or, or priestly, basically like the, the sort of proto-rabbinic culture mm-hmm. um, that, that comes in before it in, in Jewish uh, religion. They're more than happy, more than happy to read things, not only metaphorically, but with very powerful allegorical connections. Already by the inner testament, uh, testament literature, by Maccabees. But uh, the point being is th- there just seemed no way that what Nicodemus is doing and that, that we're reporting in the Bible is, look what happens when some real, you know, literalists don't get what Jesus is up to. Instead, what I noticed, it, it's a rhetorical move, right? One way you can disprove a, an opponent, or at least call to question their claims, is to extend the metaphor that they're doing. So when he goes, a man, you know, unless a, a man be born again, uh, as Jesus says, well, Nicodemus extends the metaphor and goes, but Lord, no one can be born again. And so then he gives the sort of metaphor, it's sort of flight as well. I, I'm old. I couldn't go into, I couldn't re-enter a womb. What, what would that even mean? And so, of course, Nicodemus is not being overly literalistic. He's asking a very existential question. Lord, nothing is born again. Nothing. You know, the closest we get is, you know, winter turns into spring but in many ways, that's sort of us being sentimental. We want to act like the flower of 2017 was the flower of 2018, but they're not. That flower's dead forever. There, there might be new things, but nothing is born again. Right. As, as you, know, you know, you can't teach old dogs new tricks, as the saying goes. So Nicodemus, instead of being sort of a literalist, is pressing the point that I think a lot of us feel. Here we are in ordinary time. Here we are between Christmas and Easter. And we're being told that all things, that we can be born again? You know, then why, why do I keep confessing the same sins? Uh, why, why doesn't my Uncle Larry ever change, right? Why, why you know, does my terrible sports team keep losing? You know, whatever it is. <laughs> why, why, why do politicians keep doing the things that politicians do? <laughs> exactly. And so that starts to get the big question is, I actually think a lot of us, if we're honest, are much more like this Nicodemus. Like we we want to believe. We go find Jesus in the night. We 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 care. We want to know. But when he says all things can be born again, 
we just look at our life and we go, we don't see a lot of examples of that. Where do we see that, Lord? I mean, we look around the world and we see a tendency to entropy. Everything around us is in decay. We begin to die the moment that we're born, right? Everything uh, starts toward that inevitable death. And of course, we've talked about that on the show before, the memento mori, this keeping in mind our death for the purpose of living. But let's also take the moment to keep in mind our baptism for the purpose of living, because is it possible, is it is it hopeful that something can be recreated? I mean, that's the language that gets used in Scripture, is, uh, behold, uh, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And the Church Fathers talked about this a lot in terms of really taking a moment to see that our lives are new lives and disassociating from our past. And yet it's, it's a, a logistical puzzle that we can't quite get to. How do we get to the place where we can really live that, uh, that not only our baptismal promises, but our baptismal realities that truly uh, something new is expected of us. And we are now empowered to be that something new. Well, I, I think so. This, I've got two things in this. One connects back to the comment I made about mistaking moderation as virtue. Um, we who live very, you know, bourgeoisie lives and, and middle class understandings of how the world works, well, we think everything should progress extremely or in an orderly fashion and, you know, uh, by incremental changes, right? We, we expect the world, we expect our soul, we expect virtues to, you know, line up like fourth graders, you know, get in line, don't talk too loud, walk down the hall. Um, you, it, you look at church history, this has never happened. I mean, you want to talk about a group of people that can, you know, Nicodemus, if he knew about it, could point to, is just look at the history of, you know, the Middle Ages or what the church had to fight in order to get, you know, the councils and things like this. Um, we want it to be that way, but even in aspects of our lives where it looks like there's that much order, either it's fake, like we make it seem more orderly, um, or uh, we have to outsource a lot of the chaos to poor people, people from somewhere else. So it's very antiseptic. We think the world is orderly, but it actually takes a lot of disorder to make it that way. And, you know, so we have to ask ourselves, what's the cost of that? Um, but, but I also think part of it is I bet you didn't know I'm going to turn this direction. I actually think you have to think of something more like punctuated equilibrium in uh, evolutionary theory. Uh, not talking about evolutionary theory at all, but people will sometimes think that biologists say like, oh yeah, evolution, things sort of orderly change. And they're like, no, not at all. What happens is you just have this growing mass of, an, of, of types of things that are the same until snap, something drastically changes. And then, boom, the new thing takes off because it's, it's, it fills a niche that was never there before. And the change is almost instantaneous. There, the, the amazing changes in like the life of, of bugs once we start making power cords and things like this. This is stuff that's happened in our lifetime, right? Um, and what I, what I start to think is actually in our life of baptism, we talk about the old dies and the new falls away. We really want it to be orderly. We want to be like a month out, six months out, two years out. This is what baptism has done for me. But the conversion never works that way. I'm a convert. It didn't go orderly. It kind of built and built and pressure and pressure, and then boom, it all changed. 
And I think sometimes we misunderstand what, I mean, resurrection is hope. It is not optimism. Right. Optimism and hope are different. Optimism acts like things will change on their own given enough time. Hope is snap, boom, change. And I think that's what baptism truly is. And so now, for those of us who have been baptized, we look at our lives and we look at the reality of our life and we say, well, that's not what I'm experiencing. I I don't feel like I can uh, see this drastic change in my behavior, in my patterns of attachment to sin, uh, in, in my relationships with others, where do we then, uh, by being mindful of our baptism and by seeking after Christ in, in the full of day, where do we find the hope for resurrection in those areas that seem to us like death? Well, I think one obvious is we have to look to the saints and realize that there were people who, I, I always like to try to point out to people that your sin is far more boring than you actually think it is. I mean, I know that we're supposed to say, like, I am chief among sinners, but also you have nothing on, like, St. Augustine, for instance, or very few of you do, right? It's, it's, it's a small competition. Um, you, you think about just the sort of wily characters that make up the communion of saints, and you go, you know what? If so-and-so's in heaven, you have a chance, right? At least a chance. Uh, but part of it starts to be exactly what going back to that idea about the, the punctuated equilibrium, the floodgates opening to change something, you know, what you have to do is a lot of times I think the sinfulness in our life or our attachments to the old man in our life, we we, we want it to be very heroic, right? We, we take the sword of virtue when we thrust it into the heart of our sin, but usually the life of holiness is killing the old man by a death by a thousand paper cuts, a death by a thousand paper cuts. And every time we go, and yes, it is, it is tough and it is no fun to keep going back to that priest, same confession, same confession, same confession. But each one of those confessions, each one is just a paper cut in the skin of that old man that, that, that is holding on to us. And remember, it's desperate too. It wants to stay. It knows what's up. Mm-hmm. It's not neutral sitting around death by a thousand paper cuts and everything we add on to the, to our spiritual life is increasing that sort of thing. So a lot of times I think what you hear with people who truly not only convert, but find that they've given up something that they used to do is one day they, they wake up and they realize they haven't been that old person for weeks or months or years, but, but it's, it's because of how it goes, right? It's never this, I made five-step decision, bammo. Right. So anything you add to your spiritual life, go to Mass sometime this week other than Sunday. Find a daily Mass. Find a time to go and sit in adoration. Find a time to add an extra prayer and add a paper cut to the old man. There's more to my conversation with Bo available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link to find out more information. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. I'd love to hear from you there. We'll be right back right after this with much more. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We've been talking today with Bo Bonner, host of The Uncommon Good on Iowa Catholic Radio. He's also the director of the Zeta Institute and director of mission and ministry at Mercy College as we dove into the topic of baptism. Now, we were looking at the implications theologically of baptism, but I have to tell you my favorite part of, of baptism externally is the chrism, right? You, you pray uh, that the priest uses a lot on the head of that baby, and then you don't wash the baby until the chrism fades, until you can no longer smell it because, or, or some other smell takes over, because it's just such a, uh, a sign in a very real way that points to the, the loveliness of baptism. If you missed any part of my show with Bo, have no fear. You can access the archives by going over to our website, OutsideTheWalls.com, where you'll find this week's episode and every other episode we've aired. You can also get it on your podcast aggregator device, whether you listen on your phone or some other electronic device. You can go to iTunes, to Podbean, to any number of different podcast aggregators and find the show archives there as well. Now, for those who support the show through Patreon, we have extra segments, including this week. There's more to the conversation with Bo. Uh, as of today, there are 88 pieces of extra content, segments that are just waiting for your ears. All you have to do is join the community of supporters over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link and take a look at the various tiers at which you can support the show. For as little as $5 a month, you get access to all the extra segments that we have. Again, find that over at OutsideTheWalls.com and click the Support the Show link. Let's turn our attention now to our readings from Scripture and from church history. Our reading from Scripture comes from the book of Titus. Beloved, the grace of God has appeared, saving all and training us to reject godless ways and worldly desires and to live temperately, justly, and devoutly in this age as we await the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to deliver us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people as his own, eager to do what is good. When the kindness and generous love of God our Savior appeared, not because of any righteous deeds we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the bath of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He richly poured out on us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we might be justified by His grace and become heirs in hope of eternal life. That reading again comes from the book of Titus chapter 2 and 3, a couple of different passages there. This was a really interesting to my wife and I, because we grew up in the Protestant church. We were both baptized in the Protestant church. And this was one of those readings that we just never heard. First, it was never preached, but even when we would read it on our own, we never caught the the sense that baptism was the thing, was the means and the mechanism that God has chosen to actually bring us salvation. And here it's written as clear as day that he, Jesus, saved us through the bath of rebirth. We were saved by the baptism. 
Now, of course, I grew up in a tradition where baptism was the outward and visible sign of an inward grace that was already present. It was not the mechanism of that grace. It was an obedience to that grace to go out and then show it. My wife's tradition growing up was even more explicitly uh, stating that baptism was our obedience to Christ's commands and not anything that Christ would do for us. It's also always very interesting to me because the, those traditions that we were a part of were the ones that would say, we can't earn our salvation. There's no work that we can go and do that would save us. And yet for them, baptism is very much a work. It's a thing that we do for God rather than a thing that God does for us. I remember the first time that I was really impacted by this idea of sacramental grace. I was sitting in my Protestant seminary, and we were talking about baptism, and we were uh, talking about whether or not we should do infant baptism or not. And this was a Methodist tradition, so it was probably a little bit more friendly to that idea. Uh, but the, the professor said something that really just reached out of the woodwork and smacked me. He said, it all depends on who is doing the action. If we are doing the action as the believer, then it would make sense for us to wait until the belief was there for that action to have meaning. But if God is the one behind the action, then it doesn't matter when it's done because God gives the gift as he gives. And there's no, uh, no way that salvation can be more a gift than when it is given in baptism to an infant who can do nothing at all but receive. And of course, in the Catholic Church, we believe very much that God is the one doing the action through baptism, bestowing on us justifying grace and reconciling us to himself. Our reading from church history today comes from a sermon by St. Gregory of Nazianzus. Christ is bathed in light. Let us also be bathed in light. Christ is baptized. Let us also go down with him and rise with him. John is baptizing when Jesus draws near. Perhaps he comes to sanctify his baptizer. Certainly, he has come to bury sinful humanity in the waters. He comes to sanctify the Jordan for our sake, and in readiness for us, he who is spirit and flesh comes to begin a new creation through the spirit and water. The Baptist protests. Jesus insists. Then John says, I ought to be baptized by you. He is the lamp in the presence of the Son, the voice in the presence of the Word, the friend in the presence of the bridegroom, the greatest of all born of women in the presence of the firstborn of all creation, the one who leapt in his mother's womb in the presence of him who was adored in the womb the forerunner, and the future forerunner in the presence of him who has already come and is to come again. I ought to be baptized by you, we should also add, and for you. For John is to be baptized in blood, washed clean like Peter, not only by the washing of his feet. Jesus rises from the waters, the world rises with him. The heavens like paradise with its flaming sword closed by Adam for himself and his descendants are rent open. The Spirit comes to him as to an equal, bearing witness to his Godhead, 
A voice bears witness to him from heaven, his place of origin. The spirit descends in bodily form like the dove that so long ago announced the ending of the flood, and so gives honor to the body that is one with God. Today, let us do honor to Christ's baptism and celebrate this feast in holiness. Be cleansed entirely and continue to be cleansed. Nothing gives such pleasure to God as the conversion and salvation of men, for whom his every word and every revelation exist. He wants you to become a living force for all mankind, lights shining in the world. You are to be radiant lights as you stand beside Christ, the great light, bathed in the glory of him who is the light of heaven. You are to enjoy more and more the pure and dazzling light of the Trinity. As now you have received, though not in its fullness, a ray of its splendor, proceeding from the one God, in Christ Jesus our Lord, to whom be glory and power forever and ever. That reading comes from a sermon by St. Gregory of Nazianzus. And we see here that we were, we have this gift given to us of baptism, and we receive that gift, but even more than that, we receive marching orders, as it were. We, through baptism, are made sharers in the divine nature. We are made part of the body of Christ, and not body of Christ as we have maybe come to use it as some nebulous sense of belonging to one another, but in a very specific way that the body of Christ is the body that goes and heals and brings comfort and consolation. The, the body of Christ is the one that goes out and makes all things new and restores all things. It's as members of this body of Christ that we, as Paul said, become ministers of reconciliation. We have, uh, we have an obligation by virtue of our baptism. I talked about it earlier. We have a therefore. I've been baptized. Therefore, there are implications to that. And so now the task for us is to remember our baptism not as a sentimental memory, but rather remember that we are the baptized. Remember what baptism has done for us and what baptism requires of us. Remember and keep in mind the therefore of our baptism. And for us who are parents or godparents who have had our children baptized, there's an even greater responsibility that not only are we to live out our baptismal call and to fulfill our baptismal promises, but we're to guide our children to remember their baptisms in a way that equips them to live out their baptismal promises and to fulfill their baptismal mission. Here is our task. We who have been recipients of such great grace now, today, be buried with Christ in his baptism and through the resurrection, bring hope to the world. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Richard Jones and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.